0: Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 1 going through verse 6. Just kind of wait for everybody to get there. I'm Robert Piercy by the way. I always see crossing students and crossing kids and audio visual, visual stuff, you know, so if you ever had a streaming problem while we were watching at home and stuff like that, I'm sure it was one of the volunteers. Um, yeah anyway so great to have everybody here we go ready we're going to dive into the word Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 Jesus talking in his sermon on the mount shifting gears he says do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others you will be judged and with the same measure you use it will be measured to you And do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Let's pray one more time. Father, we need your help now more than ever to understand your word, understand who we are, who you are. And I'm just asking right now, would you reveal to us in such a gentle way like only you can? Reveal the hidden things of our heart to us, that we might turn to you and enjoy you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So it was 1996, I was a 15-year-old, starry-eyed new Christian, and I was at a Christian camp down in Arkadelphia with a small group of high school boys from my church and they would go every year. It was my first time to ever go to this camp. And half of the guys that were down there were a little older than me. I was only like a sophomore in high school. And there were a couple of seniors there. One of them was this dude named John Inkstrom. He was a senior at Paragold High School. Yeah, Big John is what we called him. He was about two years older than me and he was seven feet tall. He really was. Uh, in fact, we have a picture of him with one of our own here, Jody Dillon. Look at there. This is, this was only taken about some or eight years ago. But that's John. Of course, Jody already, you know, kind of, well, vertically challenged a little bit, but I, I wouldn't even, I like hit John's chin, you know. I remember going down to John's house when he finally built one there in, uh, in South Haven where he moved, uh, south of Memphis. And he, he would always have to duck in doorways. Every time he came in the room, he'd do, do this number right here. And so when he built his house, I remember the first thing I noticed, he had this nine-foot-tall door, you know, going into his house. So he was, But he was not only like a physical giant. John was a spiritual giant. And that is what made him really stand out of the crowd to me. He had this, like, passion and zeal for Jesus that very few people that I knew had. Uh, he was very genuine. Um, I remember sitting at the lunch table at this camp with John, and he started talking to us about these people from Cabot that he had met. And for those of you millions watching online, not from Arkansas, Cabot's another small town, kind of like Paragould here in the great state, natural state of Arkansas. And John's talking about these kids that he had heard talking about what God was doing in their hometown of Cabot. And he's telling us that these guys are saying that all these teenagers and stuff are being saved in Cabot. I mean, there's people being baptized every week. He said that, uh, like, people in school, there was this, this love and desire for the things of God in the public schools at Cabot. It's just going on and on about the things he had been hearing. And then at some point, he just kind of stops talking. And he looks down. He was always real dramatic. He just looks down. And then he says, I am sick and tired of hearing about what's going on in Cabot. Like, I am ready for God to do something like that in my hometown. I'm ready to see God do that kind of move at Paragould High School. And I remember hearing him say that and thinking, yes, I want that too. I want to see a great movement of God. I want to see God do something like incredible in my time, in my town. It's like Habakkuk was saying, what a fantastic book. But Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk praying to the Lord, he says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. Like, I've heard about it. And I think it's awesome. He says, I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Like, I heard about what you've done. It's so great. But then he says, repeat them. In our day, in our time, make them known. God, would you do that in my life, in my town, in my church, with my people? I've sat and listened to countless missionaries who've come to churches that I've been in, and they describe these mighty moves of God, how people were turning to Christ and leaving their old way of life, even in the midst of intense persecution, I've heard these stories from China and India and South Korea. Just incredible stuff that God's doing. I've heard stories, read books, watched YouTube videos of great revivals, these great movements of God around the world and throughout history. But ladies and gentlemen, I long to see revival. I want to see it. I want to see it happen in paragold I want to see God do it in our day. Do it. Do it again, Lord. I can't count the number of times that I've, I've been to a revival. Any y'all ever been to one of those? Like we'd put these things on the calendar and in the church and we would calendar it out. We'd say next year, September, first week, September, we're having revival. And we'd have this three to five day scheduled event called a revival and yet there'd be no revival. churches put these on all the time so like what does it even mean like what what is revival and if you remember a couple of weeks back jared and adam co-taught together this incredible message and they referenced this book called revival in the hebrides and it's about this revival that happened in the early 1950s in the Isle on the isle of lewis or these islands of the hebrides which is off the coast of scotland i mean like this remote place there's not a whole lot of people that live there and uh, Duncan Campbell was the minister who was kind of involved in the great revival there and in that book Duncan Campbell explains what true revival is as he has experienced and we'll put the quote he writes on the screen he says I do not mean a time of religious entertainment with crowds gathering to enjoy an evening of bright gospel singing and even that I mean that's great I do not mean sensational or spectacular advertising. In a God-sent revival, you do not need to spend money on advertising. Revival, he says, is a going of God among his people and an awareness of God laying hold of the community. In revival, the fear of God takes hold on the community, moving men and women who until then had no concern for spiritual things to seek after God. And boy, do we need that kind of revival. I mean, we are living in a broken world. From individuals struggling with depression and anxiety to drug use. There's a sex trafficking epidemic going on in our world here in our own backyard. There's the coronavirus. The toxic political climate, and it is toxic the breakdown of marriages and the family sexual abuse within the church it is crazy and we need a move of god it makes me think of second chronicles 7:14 where he says if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will what I will heal their land Or psalm 24 verse 3 David asks who may ascend the mountain of the lord Who may stand in his holy place who can do that? It's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust an idol or swear by a false god So that's the thing, right? That's what we need. We need the nation to turn from its sin. And by the nation, by the way, what I really mean is other people. I mean, not me. Because I personally, just to tell you, I personally live a pretty godly life. I always have. And if you don't know me very well, I want to uh, tell you a little more about myself. So if you'll indulge me, I'm going to go back to my teen years sitting at that camp. And I want to let you know that I was the model teenager. And I'm actually not exaggerating. Like, I never cussed. I never smoked. Never had a cigarette, ever. My dad told me if I ever had one and he caught me, he would make me turn it around and eat it. What he told me. And I believed him. I never drank. Do you know, I am so proud, I have never had a sip of alcohol in my entire life. I didn't have any sex until i got married i did not backtalk my parents my friend clay one of my best friends in high school he told our entire youth group one time that i was the best christian he had ever met and the reason he said that was true is because i don't cuss and he even said that if people were around us like jocks and stuff in school and they were cussing clay would step up and say like hey guys watch it robert's here it's true. I did not do any bad sinning. But boy, I was an expert at seeing it in everybody else. Oh, I was good. It's it's called judgmentalism. Like Have you ever heard of that? I'm sure you all know somebody who struggles with it. I mean, not you. Someone else. It's what Jerry Bridges calls a respectable sin. He says it this way, the sin of judgmentalism is one of the most subtle of our respectable sins because it's often practiced under the guise of being zealous for what's right. And that's what I thought. I thought, God, I'm so zealous for what's right that I can't help but notice all these other heathens out here that don't get it, that aren't as good as me. So think about how respectable judgmentalism is. I can openly confess being judgmental, and nobody is moved. Nobody's up in arms or like, oh my, he's judgmental. Nobody does that. In fact, I can crack jokes about it and I can get most people to laugh. But if I were struggling, say, with marital unfaithfulness, I would expect some really major pushback. Can imagine me in my DNA saying, boy, yeah, this week I'm, I'm having another affair. It's just something I'm really struggling with, really trying to grow in that area. But judgmentalism, that's what he means by being respectable, a respectable sin. No one's going to think too little of you for that, and no one did of me. But Jesus, no, he doesn't talk about it like it's a respectable sin. He describes it as being soul-destroying and blinding. Let's look at his words again, Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. And can we just stop for a second and address the elephant in the room? The question that we're all asking. Is Jesus saying that we should not make any moral judgments? That we should never call out sin? Is he saying we should never correct anyone? Absolutely not. He's not saying that at all. I mean, we we have to judge. We're always judging. You're always judging. When you pick a babysitter to watch your kids, you're making judgments. There are certain people you would not allow to have that job. When you choose a restaurant, you're making a judgment. Like, what if you, I said, hey, let's go to, let's go to such and such a restaurant. You're like, oh, that's disgusting. Like, hey, don't judge. Or when you decide which church to be a part of, you're judging. Even when people make the argument of like, hey, don't judge me. Do not judge, lest you be judged. For you to judge me is wrong. Well, even that argument right there is a, it's a self-refuting argument because when you make that argument, you know what you're doing? You're judging me for judging you. You know what I'm saying? It's an instance where we have to allow scripture to interpret scripture. So does Jesus mean like we are not to make judgments? Well, in John 7, 24, he says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So obviously there's a way to judge and a way not to judge. Second John 10 and 11 tells us about what we're to do with false teachers. It says we're not to welcome them into our house. Well, how do we know a false teacher? We've got, to, we've got to judge. So as disciples of Jesus, we must make right judgments. And Jesus, in the very passage that we're reading, he tells us not to give to dogs what is sacred or cast our pearls before pigs. Now, that must mean that there are some people who are dogs and pigs, and dogs, by the way, that Jesus is talking about is not like my dog, Chester, who's really cute. My dog, Chester's a little Pomeranian, really cute dog, but he is after all a scavenger and he is, if I let him disgusting one day. Um, and this would happen all the time. If I left the door open to my back bedroom where my cats hang out and their litter box is, but I up there with Chester, you know, playing. he's playing in the floor and he's real, you know, he's a Pomeranian. He's little and he's ah, I like this all the time. And so he's down like this, you know, and there's something he's playing with down the floor. And I'm like, oh, he's gotten into something else again. What is it? I grab it. It is a, don't judge me. It's a litter-encrusted cat turd. He has it in his mouth. I have it in my hand. I'm like, oh my, oh my, what is this? Throwing it away. Get out of here, Dog. And, then, and I think of that every time I come in the door and he's like so excited to see me and I pick him up. I'm like, hey, buddy. And he's just licking all over my face. You never know where that thing has been. And Jesus says there are some people who are dogs, who are pigs. Well, how do we know who's who without practicing right judgment? And then later in the same chapter, Jesus will go on, we'll go on in verse 15. He'll say, watch out for false prophets. He says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. And then he says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. In other words, by the things on the outside, the things that they teach, the fruit of their life, you'll be able to notice them. And this is true both of false teachers and of whether someone is uh, truly a disciple of Jesus or not. You can judge them, Jesus says, by the fruit of their life. In fact, Jesus does not say that we should not be concerned with the speck of sawdust in our brother's eye. Look in verse 5. He says, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so we have to reject this notion that love is somehow the same as apathy or affirmation of sin. My father-in-law, he just finished up a, a cancer treatment, which consisted of six weeks of chemotherapy and radiation treatment for throat cancer. He had a cancer spot that was on his tonsil. And it wasn't, like, super serious, and the doctor was never super afraid. But the treatment itself was was really hard on him. Like, it's it's messy. He, he can't even produce saliva now, and so um, his mouth is always dry. He had a hard time swallowing for quite a while. He had to have, like, a feeding tube and all this just so that he could eat and, and be able to, because he couldn't swallow food. It was really, really hard on him. And uh, if that doctor who first saw the cancer spot on his throat had tried to be nice, then he might have said something like, Oh well, I mean, like he'd been scared by what he saw, but then I oh, you look great to me. You're you're quite a guy, you know? Boy, you must work out. Now that'd be really nice, but it'd be really wrong, it'd be really bad. And in fact, we can damn a person by not practicing discernment. See, the eyes of a disciple of Jesus, when the Spirit comes upon you, your eyes have been opened. And the eyes of a lost person have not. And so when you're face-to-face with a lost person and you see what they don't, and you look at the fruit of their life and you clearly see they're not a disciple of Jesus, and you withhold that discernment, you do not say anything about the assessment that you have, by the Spirit, by the grace of God, made about that person... In, effort, in an effort to be nice and not hurt their feelings, you can actually damn that person. So calling others out is extremely uncomfortable, but it, but it is loving. It's why church discipline at its core is the most loving thing that we can do for the church. Jesus says that a little leaven, like yeast, leavens the whole lump and so loving church discipline it actually purifies the church not only is it the most loving thing you can do for the church it's the most loving thing you can do for the person who's in sin why is that because sin is sin is destructive whether you're saved or lost it separates us from god god's the thing that we long for the most it robs us of joy like sin destroys our lives Sin's destroying my life. It'll destroy your life. It destroys the life of the lost person. And so it's loving for us in love and gentleness to prayerfully and compassionately confront the sin in others. It's one of the highest expressions of love. So Jesus is not saying we should not make moral judgments. Rather, we have to be careful about being self-righteously judgmental. It's a type of judging that makes you feel better at the expense of the person being judged. Like at least I'm not like that person. It helps me feel superior to someone else. Maybe think of it this way. Have you ever said that you would never do something that you see someone else doing? Like I used to say this all the time about how I'd raise my kids, you know, until I had them i would I would never ah I, I would never I'll never be the kind of dad who yells at his kids like that, never why why would i why would I yell at my kids because yelling is only going to produce fear in them, and God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power, love, and sound mind i would I would never. Never yell at my kids. In fact, I, I would only want to model the same type of character and attitude of the Lord God that I seek to represent. You know, I only want to do that in my kids. I, of course I'll point out to them that yes, this behavior is unacceptable, but my love for you is unconditional. I would, I would never. Now I, I, well, they're, well, even the ones that are grown, I yell at my kids so much we, we get this false confidence until life challenges our concept of never and i'm well aware that there are many here today and you're in a situation maybe you're watching you're in some situation that you thought you'd never find yourself in Other people's marriages may fall apart, but but my marriage, never. We will wash one another's feet in the name of our risen Savior. Never. I would would never talk to my husband that way. Never. (laughs) No, not me. I would never, I, I would never struggle with that. I don't understand how someone could be addicted to something like that. I just don't understand people who struggle with anxiety. I mean, rejoice in the Lord always. I mean, I know that. I would never. Again, I say rejoice. And Jesus is warning us to be very careful. And condemning others, especially before all the facts are in. One of these examples we could give is is social media. Um, It seems like the social media mob is the most dangerous mob that you could be a part of. And you see it all the time, like an accusation is made. And the person who is the target is completely destroyed within hours. And then the truth comes out later and we find that the initial accusation wasn't even true at all. So let me give you this little exhortation. We're going to take a little pause and I just want to encourage you that if you're going to comment on something that maybe it fires you up online, please, as a disciple of Jesus, please be certain that you have all the facts and that you do so in a spirit of love. And if you're unsure, good advice, just leave it alone. Just leave it alone. Be very careful about calling balls and strikes. Because Jesus says the same standard is going to be used against you. Look how Jesus said it, verse 2. He says, in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, that's bad news for me. Because my standard is pretty tight. Charles Simeon, he says this, uh, long, long since dead, but very wise. He says, the longer I live, the more I feel the importance of adhering to the rules which I have laid down for myself in relation to such matters. And here are his five rules. First, to hear as little as possible what is to the prejudice of others. Second, to believe nothing of the kind until I am absolutely forced to it. In other words, I'm going to believe the best in people until I'm absolutely forced to believe otherwise. Third, never to drink into the spirit of one who circulates an ill report. And oh, how hard it is not to do that. It's pretty easy to jump on, isn't it? You hear someone railing, you're like, ah, oh, well, I know more than you know. <laughs> let me, let me tell you what he did. Fourth, Always to moderate as far as I can the unkindness which is expressed towards others. In other words, I'm going to step in and I'm going to defend others. And fifth, always to believe that if the other side were heard, a very different account would be given of the matter. It is so easy to go from sincere Christianity to what Jesus calls hypocrisy within an hour. Like we have this propensity to prostitute righteousness. Like to all of a sudden make my goodness, my righteousness, this means to look down upon another and think poorly of them for my own benefit. Derek Prime says the knowledge of our own failings makes us more and more hesitant about expressing any form of criticism of others. The man who knows himself learns an increasing silence before other people's faults. And you can have this knowledge of something, speaking of knowledge here, and this, oh, this was so true of me. You can have this knowledge of something, even a good thing, that is something that someone else doesn't have knowledge of, and that can become a way for you to feel superior. It can show up in how you interpret the Bible or in your theology. Okay, so those of you who are like really religious, like you're really into the, the Bible, and that's fantastic, I'm not... No, that's fantastic. I hope you are into the Bible. However, in your zeal for what you know that others don't know, you look down on others in order to feel superior about yourself. Let it be known that you're not being faithful in your theology if you're doing so in a way to obtain superiority. Knowledge can land on a part of the heart that has not been transformed enough to handle it. Knowledge has to be coupled with a broken heart. So Jesus is going to offer this really humorous illustration to help us understand how we're to judge rightly. It's like a, like a a meme that Jesus gives here where, you know, it's like the memes like I know how to fix the world, (laughs) even though my own life is a disaster. Or I know how to fix everybody else's problems. I don't know how to fix my own. It's like, you know, a I, I, uh, three-time bankrupt person leading a financial course. Or, you know, the severely overweight person leading the aerobics class. Or the uh, person who's never run a business teaching business class at a college, which happens all the time. so how then are we to judge rightly well jesus says what do you first have to do you have to deal with your own sin first look at verse three he says why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye how can you say to your brother hey let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye i mean that's funny right like it definitely brings up pictures in your mind of like you know like oh my let me help you there you know and uh, try to it's just funny he says you hypocrite first take the plank out of your eye and you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye so he actually wants us to remove the specks because sawdust in the eyes of a person you ever had this it's an irritation it keeps that person from experiencing true life It can even lead to blindness, but you cannot see clearly to help them until you see your own sin first. You're a hypocrite. Otherwise an actor look at verse three. He says, why do you look at the speck? Maybe underline that word. Look that Greek word there literally means like to gaze at I'm fixed on it. I can't. Oh, it's just glaring me in the face. I can't see anything else. And then look at the next instance, he says, but you pay no attention. It's another word, another Greek word for look, You, which literally means you don't even perceive, you don't even notice the log in your own eye. It's literally like David, if you remember the story of David, bless you back there, it's literally like David who could easily see the sin when he believed it was committed by someone else. David had gotten into some really serious trouble. He was the king, and if you remember, he had had an affair with a lady. He was supposed to be off to war leading his army, but he didn't do that. He stays back home. He has an affair. He gets her pregnant, and then to try to cover up the pregnancy, he brings her wife home. He won't sleep with her to cover it up. uh, He's not in on the whole gag there. So what David does is he has him murdered. I mean, this great man of God has fallen, and in his mind, he's not even he it, it doesn't even notice it. He's not losing sleep over it. And then this prophet Nathan comes to him and he says, "Hey, David, there's this guy in your kingdom who did all this stuff." And David, when he hears the story of this other guy who did all this stuff, you know what he feels? oh, he's indignant. He is like, "That man should die." Then Nathan tells him, "David, you're the man." So we see the sin in others, but not with the clarity that Jesus sees it. I was seeing the sin in others, but not in a way that moves me with compassion and gentleness towards the person. Instead, the judgmental person sees the sin in others as a way to feel better about themselves, to feel superior. And my friends, this is sin. And not just a little sin. If we consider how Jesus compares the sin of judgmentalism with the sin that we see in others, well, how does he compare it? It is a log compared to a speck of sawdust. So do you really want to see revival? Do I really want to see revival? Then sin must be weeded out starting with your sin, starting with my sin. Do you want to see the world for what it is? Deal with your sin. Do you want to see others for who they are do you want to understand how relationships work how to relate to your wife how to relate to your kids how to relate to the people at work then deal with your sin not his sin your sin not her sin your sin not the politician's sin your sin not the mc leader's sin your sin not your parents sin your sin The only way to truly see what's wrong with the world is to see what's wrong with me. The only way to deal with what's wrong with your marriage, your family, your church, your community, is to deal with with what's wrong with you. So that's your first step. Jesus says, first, take the plank out of your own eye. Matthew Henry says, our own sins ought to appear greater to us than the same sins in others. And, ladies and gentlemen, if we're going to see revival, then we must deal with the sin in our lives. And so, how do we do this? It's like I think, I think maybe, hopefully, prayerfully, we're all like, "Yes, Amen. I believe that. I want, I want to deal with the sin in my life. How, how, how do I do that? Because for me, judgmentalism—I didn't even see it, I didn't even notice it. I saw it in everybody else." I even judge judgmental people so how do we do it i'm gonna give you three things that are just simple and helpful but they're not helpful if you don't do it the first one read the scriptures read the scriptures hebrews 4 verse 12 says the word of god is alive It is active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. And everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You want your sin to be exposed? Get into the word of God. Which is why oftentimes we don't. Because the Bible will keep you from sin. And sin will keep you from the Bible. So read the scriptures. Do it. And I I promise you, the, the Lord will not come at you with great shame and accusation. He's so gentle. He'll be so kind. Don't be afraid. Look at his word. Secondly, pray. Psalm 139. David says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David is asking God, God, help me to see any offensive way in me. And if you ask God, He will do it. Ask Him. God, show me. Don't show me the sins of others. I want to see how I need to change. What do I need to repent of? How do I need to Be more like Christ. What area of my life am I keeping you out of? What doors in my heart are still locked to your spirit? Thirdly, community. Community. Christian community. A community of disciples. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says that two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help them up. And just as a personal example, my DNA, which if you're not a part of our church, you don't know what that is. A DNA, it's an acronym that stands for discipleship through nurture and accountability. And my DNA has been so instrumental in my own discipleship to Jesus. Um, a couple men, Marlon, uh, Jason, Edwin, Matt, have been, you know, like... When you when you sin or when you struggle, and they love you like Christian community. That's that's where you experience the true love and intimacy of God. Like you experience it on a tangible level. It's not just it's not just like uh, you know. It's not accusatory. It's not judgmental. But they've approached me so many times, you know, in love and kindness, and and. and Pointing out things, you know, helping me to discern and see things that I need to see in myself. And when that happens, by the way, when you're the recipient of judging or critique that's done in love, like, what do we do? Well, if we're walking in the truth and we're a true disciple of Jesus, we welcome it. We welcome it because they're loving me. These guys are loving me. And they're wanting me to experience deeper life. Not to wound me or to show how they're better than me. So to those men, thank you. This is a grace of God towards you. And so when we're in that posture of humility and we've experienced a life giving healing and power of the forgiveness of God, then and only then can we see clearly to help our brothers and sisters remove the specks from their eyes. And we need clear vision to do this when dealing with the sins of others. Because the eye that Jesus is talking about, it's so sensitive. Anybody ever try to touch your eye? Ha <laughs> Oh, I can't Have you ever watched Ace Ventura, I think it's the second one. The second Ace Ventura movie. This is not in my notes, okay? I'm about to go off script here. But Ace Ventura trying to get this one guy to talk. He, uh, he's, he's resorting to all these torture tactics. And one of the torture tactics he finally does. <laughs> that's it, brother. He gets up in his face and he pulls his thing down and starts poking his eye <laughs> like that. The guy's like, ah, I can't handle it. It's, uh. Yeah, the eye is so sensitive. And if we're going to come at someone who has a genuine sin, a speck in their eye, we have to be so careful because we can really wound somebody. But if our motivation is love and we we genuinely want them to experience the same type of forgiveness and, and grace that we have experienced, then brothers, sisters, we have to do this. So, Question for us today, and we're going to close with this is what is the Spirit revealing to you today? What sin is the Spirit revealing to you today? And the exhortation is to let us repent of our sin so that we can see renewal in our own lives and revival in our city. Like genuine revival. Not just a lot of people showing up at church, but genuine revival, a a zeal and a passion for the things of God. And not just by the people in the church, but in such a way that like it spreads like wildfire through our city. And if that's going to happen, it's not the sins of others that we have to worry about. It's our own sin. And I promise you, the Lord will be gentle with you. He's already taken the shame and punishment that you so rightly deserve upon himself. So when you come to him, you can do so as a child who's being adopted. You can run to him and he'll He'll receive you with open arms because all the shame that you would feel over your sin, which is, should be there, it was placed upon him. He was made to be sin for us and died on a tree so that we could be freed of our sin. Let's pray. Father, Father, um, thank you for the way you deal with us. I thank you that all for all the time that I was so aware of the sins in others, you were so patient with me. You didn't quit. didn't give up on me. And Father, it still wants to creep up in my heart. It still wants to, which is why daily, Lord Jesus, I need you. We need you. And would you now, I'm just praying, please, because we truly want to see revival. We want to see a breath of the Spirit of God sweep across our church, our families, our city. So would you gently reveal even now the sin in our lives that we might repent and that seasons of refreshing may come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing.